It's a highly charged issue that affects all Canadians. Gun legislation. The federal government has launched Bill C-21, which aims to reduce gun violence in Canada. But will it? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. The spark that's inflamed this issue was the mass shooting in Nova Scotia last year, which claimed 22 lives. The guns used were illegal, and for the most part, the area knew the shooter had, quote, a heck of a gun collection. Now, you don't have to own a gun to have a piece of this issue because it breaks down to, well, public safety and property rights. Bill C-21 targets 1,500, quote, military-style assault rifles. The problem with that is there's no classification of firearm as a military assault rifle. So no one really knows what it specific, specifically applies to. Now, an Ipsos Reid survey found a majority of Canadians support further legislation on firearms. 87% support uh, a ban, while at the same time, one-third, one-third are worried about government overreach. Kind of a dichotomy here. And add more confusion to the issue, the federal government wants to hand municipalities the ability to ban handguns within their jurisdiction. Now, our unpublished.vote question asks, do you feel implementation of Bill C-21 will reduce the incidence of gun crime in Canada? 3.2% said yes, 96.5% said no, and 0.3% unsure. Now, however you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, or on our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote. And then email your MP to tell them why. Now, joining us to discuss Bill C-21, Rod Giltakis, the CEO and Executive Director of the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. Ken Price is a spokesperson for the Danforth Families for Safe Communities. Irvin Waller is the Emeritus Professor of Criminology at the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Ottawa. And Alison DeGroote the Managing Director of the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association. And what we'll do, folks, is we'll just go around the horn quickly on the Numbers. And when we ask the question, do you think C-21 will reduce gun crime? 96% of the people who listen and watch our show don't think it's going to do anything. Allison, uh, you think that's pretty accurate? Um, I think all these polls uh, have a built-in flaw in that is in the way we're um, asking Canadians questions. So every time I see one of these surveys, uh, I, I hesitate to, to put any faith in them because I, I think we're always framing the conversation incorrectly. Um, you know, for example, on the uh, assault weapon ban, uh, my dad is a retired RCMP officer, avid hunter, uh, you know, I grew up hunting in Canada. If I asked my dad, who's a knowledgeable, relatively knowledgeable firearms person, do you think assault weapons should be banned in Canada? He would answer yes. Um, and then I asked, and, and, but he would follow that by, I thought we did that in uh, mm. 1978. Right. And then I said, no, dad, they're talking about, um, you know, semi-automatic five round 223 ammo um, uh, sports shooting rifles. And he goes, oh, well, my 308 hunting rifle is more powerful than that. So, um, you know, it's a thing to go out to Canadians and say, uh, do you support an assault weapons ban? It's a different question to say, how do you feel about sports shooting 
Um, you know, I, I, I make an analogy and say, uh, it's like telling people you can only wear wool, even though we've invented Gore-Tex. Mo modern sporting rifles are made of black composite materials because they're waterproof, they're lighter, they're more durable, they're uh, better for taking out in the field. Um, um, they look different than my dad's would stock hunting rifle, uh, but um, unless you have a, a much more honest conversation and an honest question, uh, the survey is always gonna be skewed towards the way the question is framed. Well, okay, now, the, the question was framed, do you think it's gonna reduce crime? Oh. Uh, just, that, that's it, it just reduced crime. Yeah. yeah, I think it depends on what kind of crime. You know, I also think we're- Gun crime. I think we're misleading Canadians on, uh, what um, what is informing the current government's agenda with respect to firearms legislation, and it's getting muddled. Um, there's really two separate questions here. Uh, most of the current legislation dates back and is being driven by uh, some very uh, strong advocates and strong voices that were victims of a specific uh, crime. And that is the crime that those voices are trying to solve for. Um, and it's getting muddled with, okay, urban crime, gang crime, illegal crime. That's not the same crime as the Polytechnique shooting, for example, or for that matter, the Nova Scotia shooting. Those are two very different conversations. Is this legislation going to solve gun crime in downtown Toronto and downtown Vancouver? Uh, the answer is no. Are there, um, is there a worthy conversation that we need to have about mental health, about mm. um, domestic terrorism, about incel, about anti-feminism? Um, that's a separate conversation. And in that case, I think this legislation also falls short uh, of solving that crime. But it's very important, I think, to be honest in our conversations and truthful in our conversations. The Danforth shooting is another example. Uh, is this legislation going to do anything to, to solve for that horrible crime? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think it will. So I think we're failing on all aspects of this because we are not having honest conversation that leads to sound public policy uh, on these issues. All right. Now, uh, Ken, let's go to you. As um, we talk about the the numbers, and 96% of the people who listen and, and were voting in our unpublished.vote question uh, feel this bill will not reduce gun crime. That, that was the thing. What do you think? Are you surprised by those numbers? Or do you feel that, you know, that's pretty well in line with what most people feel today? Well, I think as was pointed out by Allison, I agree it's a complex issue and it has many, many uh, aspects. And in fact, and what I will also say is if you do a national survey across all citizens, I'm not sure how close to the issues they are. Like I will say and admit, and I admitted this, you know, prior to, you know, our family becoming uh, a victim of gun violence, I, you know, I was probably like most Canadians. I had an assumption about, you know, the safety of the country and about, what was happening with respect to gun ownership or the, the number of guns that were out there and so on, particularly compared to the United States and other measures that I would just use anecdotally and probably had other things in my mind when choosing who to put into power and so on. 
Um, so I, I guess it, it's not surprising because I, I think the one one thing I will say about Bill C-21, it's ambitious in its scope. I'm not going to say, like, I, I think what we're going to find is there's a number of things to pick apart here. It does talk about a lot of issues that I think do need to be discussed uh, from time to time. And I think Allison mentioned some of them. You know, what is the definition? What What is the definition of a rifle that's too powerful for somebody to own privately? You know, that's that's what is going around and around. And you know, having, uh, you know, made a decision based on just choosing models rather than explaining what those characteristics are, I think leaves everybody unhappy, quite frankly. Um, you know, or even talking about leaving it up to the 3,578 municipalities to work out whether they want to strengthen bylaws or not, and how that can't be confusing with respect to handgun policy. So I think, again, talking about handgun ownership is a good idea, though what's been proposed here, I would say, is, is confusing. So it's easy to see why yeah, people could go down the menu and say, well, I don't, I can't, I don't understand that. I don't agree with that. So I'm just going to say no. And so it would be easy to find a way to get to 97% of people um, saying no. What do you think, Irvin? Uh, are you surprised at the numbers that high? Or, or do you think the legislation is uh, too ambitious and won't solve the problem? Well, I think there are two things going on. Uh, I think uh, this legislation will reduce uh, the risk of a polytechnic or a Quebec uh, mosque uh, event. That's really what we can see from the Australian experience and from New Zealand experience. But those are very uh, rare events, fortunately, in this country. Uh, I don't think it would have uh, in any way impacted what happened in Nova Scotia. Uh, what I find uh, frustrating is that the debate has been around what is complex legislation and is also in many ways compromised from what they originally said. And we don't hear a debate about what would reduce the, um, the gun violence like the Danforth um, um, incident. And uh, the Liberal government promised um, 50 million a year in the last election, in my view, not nearly enough, but uh, we could reduce the street gang, street gun violence in cities like Toronto uh, by more than 50% in the next three years based on the knowledge we have of uh, uh, what works. And this is a question of tackling the causes, tackling the risk factors that lead these young men into those uh, street uh, gangs. Um, and um, we need to do that uh, systematically and um, we will uh, we will see real reductions in, in, in gun violence uh, and we would see this in Surrey or uh, you, you name it. It, mm -hmm. it is eminently preventable uh, but what you have to do is is tackle why these young men are going into that. So you're really reducing the demand for uh, handguns and if you reduce the, hand, the demand for handguns, you will reduce uh, handgun violence. I, I, I think giving municipalities uh, the power to ban handguns, um, th this is uh, smoke and mirrors. Uh, mm. it, it is so easy to, you know, we're on the border with the United States. Uh, it is so easy to smuggle handguns from the United States. And the estimates are that between 50 and 70% of handguns used in shootings and homicides come from the United States. Well, um, 
So a ban in Toronto without a national ban and even a national ban, in my view, would, would not have been the most cost-effective way to, uh, to deal with it. Let's get on with saving lives uh, by uh, using the knowledge we have today and implementing it uh, effectively and learning from cities that have reduced violence. All right, and uh, Rod, uh, <laughs> you were last to check in, so that's why you're last. Uh, but are you surprised? 96% feel that uh, C21 will not solve gun crime. I'm not surprised at all. Um, I think anyone that looks deeply into this topic starts to understand it a little more because it is a complex social topic, right? And it takes more than, than a pollster calling up somebody's house at dinner time and saying, do you want to ban dangerous assault weapons? You know, of course, most people are going to say yes, especially people that don't know anything about the topic, because I think people equate all of this fear that is peddled um, many times by the media and government to promote an agenda. Um, it affects people and they link dangerous assault weapons with violence. And it's very easy to do that. So of course, when someone has asked that question, I'm against violence, so yeah, of course, let's ban guns that are, are being used in violence. Like it's completely understandable. But again, this is a very complex topic. And as more people understand this topic more, you're seeing less and less support for these rudimentary polls and these, you know, rudimentary um, political efforts, and that's, you know, part of the work that we do. Um, though it's it's rough work, is trying to get Canadians to look just a little bit deeper into it. And the more you know about it, uh, the the whole gun issue and and systemic roots of violence and and what would work and what isn't, what wouldn't, then you see people uh, not supporting uh, these these types of efforts. Well, you know what, and, and I'll tell you, I, like I, I am not a gun guy, but there was a lot of research going in to try and figure, figure this out, and it is a very twisted, tangled issue. Let's talk about assault-style uh, assault rifles being banned. But the problem, Rod, is there's no definition for that, is there? Well, there is. There is. An assault weapon is a fully automatic, military-grade uh, firearm, and, and you know what? They exist. And they are designed to kill the most amount of people in the shortest amount of time. And only the military has them. That's what the Canadian forces use. It's a full auto machine gun uh, built for that purpose. They were banned to private, in, you know, from private hands back in 1977, implemented in 78. And that's, that's the fact. And we've had semi-automatic rifles in Canada for more than 100 years. We've had, had AR-15s in Canada for more than 60 years. Um, and it's really not about the model of the firearm. It's about violence. If you really focus on reducing violence, whether it's terrorism or gang activity or multiple victim public shootings fueled by hate or whatever other ideological motivation, if you work on those roots of violence, all violence goes down. Everybody's better off. We have a better country. And people like me that haven't done anything but comply get left alone. I'm a happier citizen too. So you know, to me, the, the, the solution is really, really clear if you remove the politics from it. Mm -hmm. Irvin, uh, what do you think? Because th this is sort of going up your road on, on prevention as well. And and do you support or, or see what, where, where Rod's coming from here? Uh, well, yes. I, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, my interest is uh, how we reduce the number of... Uh, victims of uh, violence and particularly the number of people killed and how we improve feelings of community safety. 
So that's my uh, focus, and my focus is particularly on on crime, not on um, suicide. And I, 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 um, the only thing I would disagree with that Rod said uh, was he used the word complex. I, I, I don't think the solutions to reducing uh, the number of people killed by guns in Canada is complex. Uh, I think it is relatively simple. What you do is you look at the evidence on what has worked to reduce that violence and you um, look in a particular city at uh, where the gun violence is coming from and you use the science to uh, go after the risk factors or causes of that and you set targets, a different target from guns, at like a 50% reduction of gun violence in Toronto in the next three years. And you go after it in a very um, focused, uh, well-managed way. And you will reduce gun violence by 50% within uh, three years. Now, what are the sorts of things that you have to do? You, you have to do that planning, which Toronto is not doing and the federal government is not doing, um, but you, also have to look at what sorts of things work. And these are things like outreach to these youth, uh, like uh, support for the families from which many of these youth come from, and particularly looking at uh, brothers, uh, younger brothers of people who are involved in, um, in the gangs and guns uh, life. And you need to look at uh, curricula in schools that uh, help young men grow up to use, uh, um, to get in touch with their emotions and anger and frustration and disappointment and deal with it in more uh, constructive ways. You make sure that the um, police are partnering with those social agencies uh, so that um, they are pushing uh, the people in those street gangs or whatever you want to call them to uh, the services that can help them. And we, we see huge reductions from those strategies in other cities. And we are generally a low violence country, but we could be a much lower violence country if we started doing those things and not relying the whole time on um, the, the, the chance of a police arrest or the, um, the length of penalty that the uh, person who gets caught will, will get. Uh, Ken, let's... Let's talk a bit about handguns. And I'm wondering in terms of a municipal ban on, on them is gonna make anyone safer because hypothetically you could ban them in Toronto, but all you gotta do is drive to Pickering, right? Well, I think the issue that we've discussed is that there's definitely things as Irvin has talked about and, and Rod about, you know, what, what should we do on the demand side? And I think what needs to be messaged is it's never the right thing to pick up a gun, whatever your circumstance. That has to be a message that all communities internalize and help promote uh, as a result. I do agree as well that it would be helpful if there were better statistics and, and, more, uh, and more of a deliberate plan to achieve those outcomes. That's exactly what we've, what we've asked for. But I think it would be also wrong to not look at the supply side. And this is where it gets a little more touchy and I, I expect um, others on this panel may disagree with what I'm going to say, but certainly the Liberals were, you know, when they came into into uh, power the first time in 2015, there were about 
I think it's 780,000 or so, I may be corrected on this, are pals. And the are pals, as has been pointed out, dictate basically who can have a handgun or who can have a, a, a restricted um, rifle. You know, so you have those two things, but the majority, I think, are handgun related and I'll stand corrected. But what we've seen is we've seen that number now grow to, you know, a million and 57,000 by the time uh, 2019 rolled around. So, you know, about 65,000 a year uh, growing. And so you have to ask yourself, hmm, you know, is that a good idea? Do we have the enforcement, bureaucracy and oversight to be able to manage, you know, um, what is admittedly a very deadly weapon? You know, uh, do we have the oversight to be able to, to, uh, to have that broad of a distribution of that kind of product in, in Canadians' homes? Can we talk about different kinds of models for ownership, storage and so on, that would mean that they're not in everybody's houses and they're not you know, so widely distributed? And, and all of the retailing that that, that that also attracts, which in our case, you know, in our story is, you know, maybe it's a corner case in some people's minds, but it happened, you know? Was a retailer, and there, and there, and then the, yeah, and then the other part that annoys me is like they're marketing a Smith and Wesson MP40. Well, that's a sidearm for police. You know, why would, you know, citizens be able to, you know, uh, buy a handgun that's designed for that purpose? So you, you put all of these things together. I've got wide retailing, store gets knocked over, gun ends up in Toronto in the wrong hands illegally, used on the Danforth in a moment of, of, um, of hate certainly, but not gang affiliated, not in a particularly notable neighborhood for that in a street that's not used to seeing that. I mean, so so the things that we've talked about so far don't really fit the story of the Danforth uh, perfectly. Now, could, uh, so we so we looked at other things and I, I think this is a debate. I'm not sure where we're gonna end up. We're certainly not in agreement on this discussion, I'm sure, but our feeling is that the number of handguns now in Canada, the number of people that can have handguns in their homes has gone has gone unchecked. And while there is a process and there is a second level of licensing and a number of other checks, this is this has gone on without um, and and the uh, the correlation certainly in the city of Toronto between 2017 and 2020 by the police services sites is to see that we're back up at levels of gun violence that are in line with the year of the gun in 2005, which was you know sort of a, an infamous year in the, yeah. in the history of Toronto. So. I, you know, and I think then what we did was we looked at other countries that have, have more restrictive, um, let's not call it that, but more restrictive ownership models, and they don't have the same issue we have, but they have the same economic kind of situation where all OECD countries, they have, you know, their, their different philosophy is just in terms of how many people should have handguns privately and be able to use them. So that's, that's our, our feeling. And so this okay. legislation, so very long-winded answer, sorry, this legislation okay. coming back down to a patchwork of municipalities, I think that's just going to, that's going to confuse everyone. I don't think anybody's happy and we haven't seen anybody come out and say this is a good idea. Not, not certainly within the gun owning community and not certainly within those that feel like we need more checks against um, public safety issues. So that's, that's where we are. Allison, I, 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 I'm curious, uh, in, in terms of the numbers that uh, Ken was talking about, that's that's a substantial increase in handguns over a couple of years. I, any particular idea why that might be? Yeah, of course. A every time you um, ratchet up the uh, pro-anti debate, uh, you're going to get uh, people on one side or the other um, feeling threatened and feeling uh, persecuted, um, and 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 
you're going to see this intense. Um, every time the, the government introduces firearms legislation, we see sales of firearms go up. It's, it's just, it's a known factor. Uh, um, right now, handgun sales are skyrocketing because people feel like their ability to own them uh, is, is going to be threatened at some point in the, in the future. Um, it's a reactive emotional response. And uh, to Ken's point, which is a really valid point, and, and one we try to make at the CSAAA all the time, and, and also uh, to uh, Irvin's point is if we are having inclusive conversations um, about firearms that respects citizens from all sides of the debate. Uh, so if you were to ask firearms business owners, hey, what do you think we can do about, uh, about this issue? Um, so I, I like to refer, and, it's, and I don't mean in any way to minimize the horrific crimes, uh, that people like um, Ken um, and Heidi Rathjen have experienced. Um, um, but if you don't come to the table and say to everyone involved, say, hey, this is a problem uh, we have in the case of Polytechnique. And that's why this firearms legislation is so hard to understand. Uh, is because it's been pitched as as solving uh, gun crime and gangs, and it's it's tied in with the guns and gangs initiative. And um, but all of the policy uh, that we're seeing uh, from this government is a reflection of of Miss um, Rathjen's um, uh, attempt to solve her the crime she was a victim of, um, and that was a licensed firearms owner. Mm -hmm. So um, it and I, and I call I it and I true. don't need to minimize it, but it's the needle in the haystack problem. How do we find uh, the person who probably shouldn't have firearms? How do we find them and remove them from the firearms owner community? Um, but you can't solve that problem without the firearms and law enforcement and mental health community, our business community engaging in that conversation. So what do we know as business owners? Where do we see flaws? For example, one of the biggest flaws of all of this legislation is the presumption that the departments who are gonna be assigned all of these extra duties are um, funded and capable of carrying out those duties. And I can tell you right now, the CFO in Ontario, which will under Bill C-71 and C-21 be responsible for lifetime background checks, license verifications, validations, uh, suspensions under the red flag and yellow flag laws, hasn't had a budget increase in 10 years, hasn't had a staff increase in 10 years. So we in the firearms business community can say, holy, like there's no way the things you're proposing in these laws are gonna be functional because none of these departments have the capacity to, uh, to implement these. Um, so without engaging in all, and we have a whole group of business owners and over 2 million citizens who are part of Canada who are part of the commitment to keeping this country safe and a, and, a, and a wonderful democracy to live in and for their voices to be silenced when they could be 
potentially helpful is, is an undemocratic process. It's, it's not how good public policy is achieved. If we just keep um, you know, trying to, to win elections with, with stroke of the pen solutions, um, we are never going to get to the deep uh, thought and the deep public policy making that it takes to actually have an impact on, on these issues. And the same is true of, of gun crime. Um, and, and let's face it, all crime, including violent gun crime, is the result of poverty, disenfranchisement, and lack of investment in our youth. That is the source. And that is longer than four years, can't be solved by the stroke of a pen, will cost not only taxpayers uh, money, but it will cost us our personal investment in learning about these issues and contributing to the solution. So racism, anti-feminism, all of these issues are issues that we collectively as Canadians, including Canada's two, two million firearms owner, including these businesses that have been operating safely and legally in Canada for sometimes 80, 90, 100 years, if they're not included in the conversation, how will we ever collectively as Canadians get to the solution of making Canada a better place and a safer place to live. Rod, I'm, I'm kind of curious, maybe you can help me out on this one. We talk about an increase in the number of, of handguns in Canada. Uh, I, I'm wondering in terms of the process of somebody getting uh, licensed, uh, FAC, that kind of a thing, is it, is it stringent enough to be weeding out the people who possibly should be ha shouldn't have a firearm or what's your opinion on on the process right now the process is extremely strict it's called a yep. um, an rpal restricted acquisition and possession license okay and I, I think we may have touched on this before and this is something that most canadians need to know if you want to uh, possess a handgun in canada you have to take a two-day safety course pass it with 70 percent or more have a deep background check, 28 day waiting period. Your spouse has to sign off if you're married. If you're not married, you have to have all of your conjugal partners for the last two years. You have to provide all that contact information. They may be um, interviewed. You have to provide two references of people that have known you three years or longer. They may be interviewed. You may be interviewed. You have to disclose any job loss, any medication that you've been on, any criminal history, any mental health problems. And then once after three to six months, you're issued that license, you are compared with the CPIC database in Canada, the Poli uh, Canadian Police Information Center. Every 24 hours, you get basically a cursory background check every 24 hours. So if, if you've had a license for three years, go out, have a, some kind of negative interaction with law enforcement, the, the firearms program will know the next day and they can legally come and take your guns away if, uh, if what's going on is is serious enough so it's an extremely strict okay. uh, regime excellent uh now Irvin, I, I wanted to ask you and in particular regarding the uh the municipal handgun ban uh municipalities are under the jurisdiction of the provinces and and let's face it politics have been played a lot uh lately <laughs> do the provinces have to follow a city's lead and in, in banning a handgun or can they determine whether they're going to be able to do that or not uh, I can't answer that uh, technical question, but mm -hmm. I would like to point out that Ontario sure. has a community safety and well-being plan law. So every municipality across the province of Ontario has to have a plan, and I think those plans have to be finished by 
June of this, uh, of this year, 2021. And those plans are the initiative by Ontario, it's actually in the Police Act, which is a strange place to put it, but that's where it is, are spreading to other provinces. And that is one step in actually making municipalities and the people who live in municipalities safer. And yes, I agree with Alison that some of these things are gonna require long-term changes in the reduction of uh, poverty and uh, schooling and, and so on. And Canada compared to other OECD countries is actually doing quite well on those things. And we're doing a lot, lot better than the United States. But today we have other knowledge and that knowledge is that if you tackle the risk factors, if you outreach to those young men, the, the brothers in the Danforth case that his, his elder brother uh, was in, in heavily involved in, I think, both drug and, um, and, and gun activities. And uh, that is a, a different red flag from the legislation. That's a red flag. Um, that family should have had uh, outreach going out to them. We know that outreach uh, in the US, it's the cure violence strategy. We know that this gives you a 50% reduction um, within two to three years. You've got to do it much better than the United States. You don't just do a little project here and a little project there. Uh, we know that family support, um, helping people uh, avoid violence in the home, um, which children are a witness of, uh, also gives you a 50% reduction. We know that programs invented in Canada, like the fourth R that's uh, normally thought of as a way of reducing sexual assault, but it actually changes attitudes of teenagers to violence. We know SNAP, that Stop Now and Plan, another uh, actually invented in Toronto. These are all proven programs. You can actually interestingly go on the website of the World Health Organization or, and or the US Department of Justice and you'll see these programs as being proven. And they, they give us short-term results, meaning over two to three years, and we're not doing this. And uh, I think any mayor who actually moves to do this, they, this is the experience of other countries, will know that if you actually reduce violence, people will vote for you. Uh, they may vote for you for other reasons, but they will vote for you on these grounds. So uh, this is something that is popular. It is eminently affordable. Um, the, the, if you took the equivalent of 10% of what we're currently spending at the federal level on um, the RCMP correction service, et cetera, which is around 7 billion. If you took 10% of that, uh, you, you could reduce, in my view, in the next decade, uh, violence to the levels that you see in somewhere like Japan or Germany. So way below where we are at, at the moment. And we need to get on with this. And I know that the public is not that aware, but if you actually go to the public and ask them what they want to see their money spent on, they want to see it on education and prevention. And you know, education is very vague, but um, and as is prevention, uh, but they are actually on, on the right lines. I, I worked for the Alberta government, um, generally seen as a right-wing government, and they had the best crime prevention strategy in the world for six years. They spent over six years, they spent a billion dollars uh, and uh, they were on the right track. And then uh, they, they dropped it for whatever reason.
So you see cities in Alberta that are already doing the community safety well-being plans that are happening on Ontario. Edmonton is committed to a 50% a reduction in violence by 2030. That's what we should see everywhere. And in order to get there, you have to look at uh, the solid violence prevention science. You have to look at uh, the sort of strategies that you need to ensure that it's going in the right places and it's really being implemented. You can't be cheap about it, but it's not, uh, um, it's, it, it's not exorbitant e e expenses. And you need to learn from cities that have been uh, successful. Glasgow, it was a knife problem, not a gun problem. Um, but you know, knives are very common in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And they reduced um, violence in Glasgow within three years by 50%. We can do that here. And by the way, uh, the Glasgow model is now used in 18 of the 40 regions of the United Kingdom, including London. And that's exactly what we should be doing. doing. And we should stop comparing ourselves to the United States and saying, you know, we're also safe. Uh, our objective should be, Japan would be my level, but if you can just bring it down to German or British levels, hey, that's almost half the rates that we've got at the moment. Why not? All right, uh, Ken, uh, one other group that in, in involved in when we talk about uh, guns and legislation is manufacturers and responsibility of the manufacturer of the firearm. Uh, the Danforth families have a lawsuit against Smith & Wesson, do they not? Uh, yes, we do. Um, you know, and the reason for that is to bring into the into the dialogue because it hasn't been brought into the dialogue, not voluntarily. You know, what what can we do to you know make the weapons safer or accountable? Like I think what uh, you know Rod Gataka has said, which is, which is correct, is the intention is a fairly restrictive licensing system tied to the weapons that those owners have, and there should be a high degree of accountability in terms of what happens to those. Our view is that that technology, user authorization technology, smart gun technology, which was developed um, in the late 90s and was on its way to some level of implementation in the United States in, in, the, year, in the early 2000s was, was dropped um, because the legislate, because of pressure of the National Rifle Association there and other groups um, and the decisions made by manufacturers that when legislation went in a different direction under a Republican government, they no longer needed to do that. Our point in bringing the lawsuit is to bring this into the dialogue because we, we think again, you know, if you're gonna have all of these guns distributed as broadly as we are, then there needs to be a higher level of accountability. And certainly in the case, uh, you know, and can you defeat these technologies? Sure you can. But who, who owns a smartphone now that doesn't have a pass, you know, has, doesn't have a passcode on it or something else? Or who doesn't have, who has a car that doesn't have an ignition system? I mean, yeah. just, seems intuitive that something like a gun should have something like that. Now, um, what could that be? That could be any of those technologies that I've just discussed. And I think our point is, this has been an underdeveloped part of the entire dialogue. And we're trying to bring that forward. Just like the supply side, you know, and again, what I would say to Mr. Waller, who was speaking earlier that, you know, some of the countries that have been cited just have a different philosophy in terms of how, you know, in addition to social programs, they also have you know, a different attitude towards who and what citizens should own what categories of guns. Like in Japan, if you wanted to talk about Japan as that, I don't think we're ever going to be Japan because we don't have the same willingness to, I think, restrict weapons the way they have in Japan. You know, to set up your bureaucracy to do it and to say that 
that few people should have those mm-hmm. guns. I don't think that's going to happen in our world. But no. Um, so I think I think you have to bring the supply side. You have to bring the gun itself, the design, what efforts the manufacturer should be um, uh, bringing in to to help to really enforce the intention of our laws in our view. So that was the point of that. All right, Ken, I want, to, I want to thank you. I want to thank our guests for joining us on a very, uh, let's face it, it, is a very charged issue here on Unpublished TV. Rod Giltaka, he's the CEO and Executive Director of the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. Ken Price is the spokesperson for Danforth Families for Safe Communities. Irvin Waller, Emer- Emeritus Professor of Criminology at the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Ottawa. And Alison DeGroots, the Managing Director of the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association. I thank you all for joining us. Coming up on the next Unpublished TV, is French on the decline in Quebec? Hope you can join us then. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.